hello everybody, it's uh, Brett Mitchell here and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Now today we're going to be talking about ATP and uh, joining me today is Associate Professor Greg Whiteley. G'day Greg. Morning Brett, good morning everybody who's listening on the podcast. Um, so Professor Whiteley is an adjunct Associate Professor at the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney and is also an adjunct fellow at the School of Medicine at Western Sydney University. Uh, Greg is also the executive chairman of Whiteley Corporation, a manufacturer of therapeutic goods um, based here in the Hunter region, the beautiful beautiful part of the world uh, here yeah. on the, on the, in New South Wales. And look, Greg's going to be talking today in his capacity of expertise in the area of measurement of cleanliness, in particular rapid ATP testing. So, and you've, Greg's published um, widely on this area as well. So it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks, Greg. Thanks very much for having me, Brett. I guess the first obvious question is, what is ATP? Look, it's a great place to start. ATP is a, a, a molecule that your body, every cell that breathes, produces this thing called ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate. And uh, it's part of an enzyme chain known as the Krebs cycle. And it, it's part of the cycle that takes oxygen out of the air and then converts it into energy. And uh, it's a particularly interesting molecule for us because um, some very smart people in the 50s wondered how fireflies flying around in the garden produced their light. And what they found was they were using this standard molecule that we all have in all our bodies and all bacteria have and all fungi have. Every, every living cellular being produces this thing. But in the case of the fireflies, they use that to create a small amount of light and they do it with an enzyme called luciferase or the devil's light bulb. <laughs> and it produces light. And these very smart people then realised, well, hang on a minute, if we produce luciferase and we can measure ATP, the amount of light will be proportional directly to the amount of ATP. And that's the, the guts of ATP testing, the theory behind it. The theory behind it. So... Where do we? Where have we traditionally seen the use of of measuring ATP? Um, I know we, we healthcare, and we'll come to that in a minute. But do we see it in other areas as well? Oh, absolutely! It's very widely used, particularly in the food sector. Um, it's it's a molecule that allows you, in a, a biochemistry sense, to to test out the health of a, a, an organic system. Um, so there's a, there's a range of different biological applications where if you want to find out how respiration is going on, which is a, a function of how well a biological system is operating, you go looking for ATP. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to find out whether something is alive or dead, excepting bacteria, because there's this thing called persister cells, but in most <laughs> we cases... We might come to that later. Yeah, we might come to that later. <laughs> but in most cases, if there's no ATP, the system's probably dead. Okay. Uh, if not, it's very dormant. Yeah, okay. So in the context of healthcare then, um, and we see ATP being used as measurements or surrogate measurements of cleanliness, where, where, where does its use come in there? What, what's the, some of the advantages on, in uses in healthcare? Well, the seminal paper was from Professor Chris Griffiths at the University of Cardiff, which was published in the Journal of Hospital Infection in 2000. And from that one paper... Um, there's more than 10,000 published references that you can see on mm. Google Scholar now, just in healthcare. If you're looking at overall ATP, there's 400 or 500,000 papers out there since that time. And um, 
Chris Griffiths' team looked at it because he was a microbiologist. He said, well, look, this, they had a new system that had been developed in the UK called Clean Trace. Mm-hmm. It was later bought by 3M. And uh, they used little cotton swabs. And uh, the, the trick they had to get around was that to release the ATP, you have to puncture the cells. Now, in the case of human cells or normal animal cells, we all have a cell membrane. So breaking open our cell wall, uh, cells is not difficult. It's just a membrane. It's fairly easy to puncture. Things like phenols can do it very quickly, some salts. Whereas with bacteria and fungi, where they have a cell wall, it's a different process. Anyway, the people with CleanTrace realised that if they use the right way of breaking open these cells or lysing these cells, they could spill out the ATP and you could measure it. It was a, hmm. a surrogate way of measuring how much cellular contamination, particularly bacterial contamination, was on the surface. And uh, and the initial thought was, well, this is real time, so you get an answer straight away. You don't have to wait 48 hours or 72 hours for your microbiological plates to come back. And, of course, these days you, you can do things in a more rapid way, but you still have to wait hours upon hours for things like, you know, Vitec 2 to come back, as well as if you're doing Maldatov mm. to do your speciation and, uh, and then you can do your, obviously, genomics. Mm. It still takes. But as a very first indicator, they realised this was a pretty good way of measuring bacterial contamination on the surface. So they went into the hospital and did it. Fantastic. And then so from there, we've seen ATP now being used in many healthcare institutions across the world as a, as a way to, to look at whether a surface has been cleaned um, or, or the level of cleanliness of a particular surface. So how, do, how does that happen in, in your experience in healthcare? What are people doing in practical terms? Well, I have a science background rather than a clinical background, as you know, and uh, we run a therapeutic goods manufacturing facility. So we're into scientific validation of things the whole time. That's what you have to do. And even when I sat on HEO23, the um, Standards Australia Committee for you know, the cleaning standards, I mean, it was all about validation, which sounds really easy, but it's technically complex. And when you get into instrumentation, doing your validation becomes pretty complex if you're not careful, and you can have a lot of things can interfere with what you're doing. Well, you, you get these little devices called these ATP units, and you send them out, and you give people swabs, and they swab this, and they swab that, and they put it in, and they get a number. Mm. Most people don't have a clue what it means. Yeah. So this is the relative light units you're talking about. So what, what does it mean? Well, that part of the problem is what does it mean? <laughs> no, like when we go out and measure, we might measure how much chlorhexidine is in a, a, an antibacterial hand wash, for example. So we've got complex chemistry equipment and we've, we've done full validations. We know what will interfere and won't interfere. And we plug it in and we, we measure it against what we know is a pure source of chlorhexidine and see what's in the sample we're measuring. Well, with relative light units, you can't do that because Mm. it's relative Mm. and every brand of device has its own scale Mm. and every brand of uh, equipment has its own understanding of what that means. And and as you're aware, you know, I've published in this area quite a lot and we're still actively publishing in this area. Mm. And, Mm. um, you know, there's... The fact that something reads in 250 RLUs or relative light units on this brand of equipment uh, means it could be a file on another brand or it could be a pass on that brand. Mm. 
Yeah. And one of the problems people have is when they read the literature, they assume that it's always the same scale and it's not, and that adds to the difficulty. So, you know, you have done a lot of work in this area and in terms of thinking at what is a pass and a, and a fail rate as well. What's your general thoughts? I know the issue of brands aside, um, uh, is there a measurement, is there a, a threshold that we can start to say this is acceptable, not acceptable by brand? Oh, yeah, I think we've got pretty good evidence for that. Mm. Um, of course, the companies, that are, and let me say to your listeners, mm. um, I have no connection to ATP. We don't yes. sell ATP That's an important stuff. disclaimer. That's we, right. we, we, I've got nothing to do with these companies. Yeah. They make us buy the consumables and the devices. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not getting a free ride on any of this stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it very much from an academic point of view. Yeah. And, uh, and, and some of the studies that are out there, all of the equipment and all of the uh, consumables have been provided by one or more of the companies. That's mm. not the case. As a consequence of which they don't really like me a lot. They, they tend to think I'm probably somewhere close to Luciferase, that uh, the devil's light bulb. But um, um, look, we, um, we we really have pretty good evidence as to what, for the main brands, what constitutes a reasonable level of cleanliness and what constitutes a reasonable level of uncleanliness. And uh, ironically, it's at the lower end of each of the brands' scale which is unfortunately where they're also the least reliable statistically. Mm. Mm. Um, and so the cutoff between what's clean and what's dirty is very grey. Okay. And and also, you know, you, again, you've, you've done a lot of work in this area. What you do prior to doing that test uh, is very important in terms of do we need to clean the surface area first or, or oh, not? Yeah. So, so what's your what's your take home messages in terms of if you're going to go and start using ATP in a healthcare facility? What are some brand we've talked about or, or the variation of relative light units? But in terms of the practicalities of doing it, can you just go and do it? We need to follow some kind of process, and if so, what's that process look like? Well, look, we, um, uh, we've put up on the uh, web on Gold Open Access through Infection, Disease and Health. A uh, revised algorithm that's pretty straightforward, really. It, mm. it um, it's a very simple method. It uses a little bit more in the consumables, but you get really good data out of it at the end. Mm. Um, what we've found is that in work we've published with all of the brands we've looked at, there's about a twenty percent chance in any one sample that it could be wrong by a factor of two. That is to say, mm. one in five samples, it could be complete rubbish. The trouble is when you're doing the work, you can't tell which one's rubbish, yeah. which, one's, which one's good. You just get a number, you know. Yeah. Where that becomes difficult is when you try and do, you know, correlations, which is, you know, obviously from an academic mm. point of view we're trying to do. It just completely mucks up your numbers. So we've got a very simple algorithm. You can go onto the IDH website, download this paper for free, and it will give you a method. And it's as simple as duplicate front-end samples, a cleaning intervention step, and then a third sample, and you collect three bits of data from one point, and it reduces your failure rate from, say, 20% down to less than 1%. You've got much more reliable data. So it's not complex. Mm. And, uh, and of course, the other thing is you need to have a sampling plan. The other thing that, again, scientists like me are trained in, uh, in how to do sampling plans, particularly environmental sampling plans. My undergraduate degree was in environmental health. 
And, uh, you know, we went out and we knew how to do field-based testing. And it's not something that clinical staff are normally thinking about. Clinical staff will think in terms of patient groups, which is normal. You have to change your paradigm about this to think about how to do these sort of uh, samplings. And it is a slightly different paradigm. So you have to get your sampling method right. We are working on an app that will give people a little bit more guidance on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that quite ready good. yet. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds so. very useful. You know, you're absolutely right about the the issue of if it's a one in five, if you don't do it, you know, according to to the right process, one in five is a pretty poor result if you're trying to interpret that. Absolutely. Um, whether it be you know, we've got something dirty here or clean here, or, um, you know, in terms of if it's in some kind of quality assurance process, quality improvement process, you can really play havoc with that when you start to get thrown up these anomalies. That's exactly right. Um, and, and you don't really know what to do with the data. There's another aspect to it, Brett, that people don't realise as well, and that is soil turns up on surfaces in two ways. The first and normal way is someone will speak and there's a little bit of spittle or an aerosol and it drops out little twinkly bits on on a surface and it looks like droplets and then it dries out and dehydrates and they're little discrete individual globs of dirt for want of a better description. And if you swab those, you'll get a pretty good reading. Now, that's normally the case with surfaces. The surface is not uniformly dirty. There's a bit here or a bit there, and Mm. you might have a colony of bugs growing there or whatever. The one thing that interferes with that, and I know you and I talked about this with respect to the REACH study, is is cleaning tends to interfere with that process. (laughs) If the cleaning's done Mm. badly, you take all of those individual globules and smear them evenly across a surface. And... um, you can't see by looking what's there. So one of the things that happens when people are testing is, is if, you're, if you take a single sample and let's say you're using a uh, Hygiena unit or it could be a 3M unit and you get a reading, Hygiena, let's say it's uh, uh, 80 and 3M will say it's 180. Those two don't correlate those two numbers, just take them as they are. Yeah. And then you take your second sample with the Hygiena and it comes in at 900. And you get the second sample of the 3M and it comes in at, at uh, 2,650. You think, hmm. well, which one was yeah. right? Which one was right, yeah. And, and in fact, when they're that far apart, the second sample has picked up soil that wasn't in the first sample. We know that because it's more than that factor of two away. They're nearly 10 times the numbers. Yeah. And when it's, when it's a number like that, the instrument is dirty. And so in the... In the sampling algorithm we've developed, we've got this category called equivocal, where you get one clean sample and one dirty sample. And the reality is when you average it, it's dirty. Mm. And, um, and, it, and and statistically and particularly in quality improvement processes, you would treat that as dirty. Um, mm. um, that's a very different situation from where you get one that's, say, 90 or, or so on hygiene and 150 on 3M, and then it comes in at, say, 110 on the hygiene, which is above the threshold we normally suggest, and, say, 265 for the 3M one, where it's just nominally above. Now, Mm. that's probably artefact. That's probably that 20% risk factor. Yeah. yeah, But you can't be sure. So I think we've talked about some of the the advantages and disadvantages of, of, of ATP. Uh, and I guess one of the things, it's similar to microbiological swabbing in some sense, is that you're only doing a selected area yeah. of a particular 
surface or room or whatever it is that you're trying to actually make a surrogate for and that's part of the problem particularly with microbiological swabbing you might have a two by two or five by five centimeter uh, area that you're swabbing relative to the whole room which might be um, thousands of square centimeters tens of thousands of square centimeters so you know you have this high risk of a false negative result i guess um yes. so you know in terms of atp if you are going into a into a room and thinking about using it as a surrogate for cleanliness and thinking about let's just say okay let's focus on high touch objects they're the ones we're interested in is there a, is there a certain level of area that you that you would number of sites that would be better i'm mean, obviously the more the better but is there is there some kind of general guide you want to give to, to listeners about how many sites in the area that you might want to actually test in in a room to, to start to make some sense of the data that you're getting well let me make a, an introductory comment and say we'll assume that we're going to do this sampling not as a one-off mm, uh, but yes. across a period of time but across forward, now yeah. if you're going to do it as a one-off you have a very different approach to doing it routinely mm. um, so let's say you were going to do it on a thursday mornings every week for whatever mm. reason if you're going to do it routinely you want to pick similar objects each time so you've got this thematic approach that you can track what's happening across mm. similar objects so that you've got same place same um high time same timing so relative uh, to when the cleaning was undertaken absolutely mm. absolutely mm. um and um you know, you might want to do it uh, twice a week because you want to do it one time before the cleaning and one time after the cleaning, mm -hmm. depending on the frequency of cleaning. So if you're in a general ward, that would be one way of doing it. But if you're in an ICU, then you've mm -hmm. got a much higher frequency of things going on and cleaning and terminal cleaning and so on and so forth. Um, look, high-touch objects are critical and objects that come into contact with high-touch objects. And uh, I specifically refer there to a paper through Curtis... Donsky's group, Professor Donsky's group in the US, where they did uh, some work looking at patient rooms uh, of patients who had Clostridium difficile or Clostridoides difficile as it is these days. And um, they were looking at the high touch objects, but they also looked at the floors. And the reason they looked at the floors was they realised people knock things off the bed and then pick them up and put them back at bed level. <laughs> So what's on the floor suddenly becomes highly relevant to what's happening on the bed space. So you need to be a little bit of a detective to look, you know, in the right place for the right evidence. Um, and there are no hard guidelines as how you do it. You almost can pick what you want to do. Just do it consistently. That's the key thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you find you've got one thing working well, then you can move to a second thing and get it working yeah. well. So if you say, well, we're going to focus on taps and sinks, all we're going to do is mm. taps and sinks and the dispensers on the hand soaps, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. so that we've got hand washing covered. That'd be a great place yeah. to start. There's a couple other things I wanted to explore just, just briefly with you. One is about cleaning and how to interpret that or does it inter does it interfere with ATPs, specifically products. So, sure. so, for example, if someone's decided to clean a room with chlorine or hydrogen peroxide vapour, um, uh, just as just as examples, you know, just just rough examples, parasitic acid, whatever it is, um, will will that affect by the very nature of uh, the chemicals that are used? Will it, will it influence what we see in terms of ATP? And do we need to think about timing from that cleaning to doing ATP testing? Great question, complicated answer for your listeners. <laughs> I know they're not going to want to hear it, but first of all, the ATP is not free ATP. So the chemistry doesn't directly interfere with the ATP, 
And we're particularly interested in, in what's in cells. Now, the cells could be bacterial or fungal. They could be human cells that have fallen out. And to get to the ATP, as I said early on, you have to break the cell open. Now, if it's a bacteria or fungi, it's got a cell wall. If it's a human cell, it's got a cell membrane, and that's it. Um, so interference comes in different ways and forms. We're probably more concerned, and this is work we're doing on an ongoing basis, as to what's happening with biofilms on surfaces. Mm. Because the bacteria are certainly affected by treatments you might apply, either poorly or well. Mm. Um, interestingly, I'm not sure if I've said this to you, you personally, Brett, but the whole theory for the dry surface biofilm came from a view that we had about universal precautions, which is mm. the people were madly using chlorine machinery that would do everything they wanted. And all the cleaning was doing was giving the bacteria a feed and a drink every couple of days. Mm. And so our method for developing dry surface biofilm was modelled around what happens in a hospital. Give everything a drink with a neutral detergent and then dehydrate it for a few days. Then give it another drink with a bit of mm. detergent and a bit of food and dehydrate it again. And it takes us four days. After four days, we end up with a biofilm that perfectly mirrors in the lab what happens in hospitals on ICU surfaces and other surfaces. Mm. Those things I'm more interested in, they are much more likely to interfere with what's happening in cleaning and yep. uh, persister cells than the chemistries per se on ATP. The only ones that you'd worry about are things that do leave a residue. So anything that says it's leaving a residue, um, yep. yeah, look, that might happen. But but again, anything that leaves a residue, it's biofilm yeah. time, you know. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> you don't want them. For our listeners, actually, we, we do intend to explore biofilms in a lot more detail in some future podcasts, a series of them, because um, it's a it's a topic that we really do need to, right. to get into. Um, and you're right, Sam, disturbing those biofilms too through um, either chemical means or physical means or very good cleaning means um, can, can, of course, potentially create things that perhaps are going to pose a greater risk. So Absolutely. there's so many unknowns. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we published a paper called finding the bad bugs in a busy ICU. Mm. And, uh, and you know, it's difficult because one of the other things about ATP is it's a broad-spectrum indicator. It doesn't correlate perfectly with specific organisms. Mm. Um, um, I know and we've seen a few papers on that come out. Yeah, and look, there's new technology. Some of the ATP companies are saying, well, we've got this test for this bug and that bug, but um, without getting into those methodological problems... Um, actually, it's a really good broad indicator. And I think if we left it at that, we'd actually be safe. Wanting it to go to the next level is just trying to short circuit standard and complex microbiology. And I think that's actually more dangerous. Um, yeah. And it sounds like we've got a lot of other things we could we could standardise and improve to, to help just the routine use of it before we even get, go any further. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, once you get a good scientific method, you will develop really high quality data. And, and that's when you'll get correlations. When you start to get good quality data out of the ATP, that's when the correlations with some of the more broad epidemiological issues turn up. And so where do you reckon, in, in sort of closing, where do you think we're heading with ATP? Um, where are the future directions and, and opportunities do you see? Oh, I think it's going to become a standard method, Brett. I, I think um, uh, not just on surfaces, but on devices. We've got a paper we've just submitted for peer review that looks at uh, it's a slightly modified uh, method on the algorithm, but it's looking at cleanliness of devices in central sterile supply units. And um, it has some fabulous data. Um, now, it was a single pass, 
So it wasn't a longitudinal study. In fact, we're probably going to go back and do a longitudinal study. Um, we may even do that locally. We've got a student who's just, uh, when I say student, she's a postdoc, who's just starting out at one of our local collaborating universities, looking at specifically instrument cleanliness. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a really important area for us um, because the devices are, are finite. You know, you can get good data out of them. Mm. So. Well, this has been a fantastic, uh, fantastic chat with you, Greg. Um, thank you so much for your, your time today. Mm-hmm. I look forward to plenty more publications and other works coming from you and many others on this space in, in the next few years. Look forward to it, Brett. Thank you and thank you to your listeners for dialing in and listening to us. Yes, thank you, everybody, for listening in. And um, until next time, it's uh, goodbye from me.